in 1 Corinthians 3. Now I want you to read this. Paul is talking about the many labors there are in Christ. But there's only one foundation. And there's only one God who brings the, the success or surplus of anything. It says in verse 12, Now if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. So there will be some people work whose work abides, and they receive a reward as a result of that. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so is by fire. So this judgment that we're going to go before is not a judgment of whether we're saved or not. The only reason you're there is because you're saved. But it's a judgment of your works, not a judgment of your salvation. And so there'll be people there, obviously, as we see here in this passage, whose works are going to be burned up. Now, they're still going to enter into heaven, but their works are going to be burned up. And they're saved, yet so is by fire. And so know ye not that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you. We're not to defile this temple, but we're to honor God with it. And so there is a full reward, a reward that a person can receive. Or it is possible that people can go to Jesus Christ and have their works burned up. And they are not rewarded. I have to tell you from the very outset of this, I don't understand the rewards of eternity. I, I don't understand what all of that entails. I don't understand the benefits of that. I know that there, there is severity of judgment that is coming upon people um, who reject Jesus Christ. And I don't understand that. I mean, hell is hell. The lake of fire is the lake of fire. I don't know how it could get any worse than as the Bible describes it to be. I believe, I believe the happiest soul in hell, if there could be happiness there, and there's not, but the happiest soul in hell is the most miserable soul in hell. And I don't understand how there can be one person experiencing more joy in heaven than another person experiencing more joy. So I think when we talk about a degree of punishment or a reward, I don't think it can relate so much to the state of happiness and, and contentment that a person is enjoying in the presence of God any more than it is a state of greater suffering or, or torment in hell. I just don't understand it, but we will experience it. And we will, we will see it then. As for, for example, Jesus said in the Gospels, as he was preaching to people, he said, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than it will be for you in the day of judgment. And he said to others, you know, that Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah. But he said, I'm telling you, there's somebody greater than Jonah that's standing before you today. And, and so it will be more tolerable for them than it will be for you in the day of judgment. So I understand that. I don't, I don't know it fully, but I understand that. We understand as far as Christians, when we die, there is going to be rewards. We've just read it. We understand that some people will receive a full reward. Some people may have all of their works burned up and they receive no reward. I don't understand all of that, but it says that. So I'm not stupid. I understand that if I can live a life on earth that receives rewards, 
then I want to receive those rewards in my life. I want to receive them. You remember Jesus gave the parable of the talents. And he said he distributed talents. He gave some, one, one five, he gave another two, he gave another one. The one with five made ten, the one with two made four, and the one that was only given one buried it, didn't do anything with it. But we always find that the person who was productive was rewarded by God. The one that had five and made ten was was blessed. Or, or, was blessed. The one that had two was blessed with more. Those that had less was taken from them and given to those that had more. The last are first. He said that. And the first are last. And so there is coming a day of reckoning when we meet Jesus Christ. And I want us to be prepared for it. There are crowns that the Bible speaks of that we can receive. We can live a life that is lived in such a way that we, we understand what these crowns are and we can live to receive them. I'll give you just a few of them. These that are mentioned in the New Testament. There is the incorruptible crown that the Apostle Paul spoke of in 1 Corinthians 9. This is the incorruptible crown, a crown that does not perish, fade, or decay. He compared it to those that run races in this life who receive in that day the wreaths that went around the Olympian's head who won the games and that wreath would wither and it would fade. But he worked so hard to win it. And the Apostle Paul said that we are also in a contest where we can win, not a crown that fades, but a crown that does not fade away. And so this is what I'm running for, the Apostle Paul said. And in order to win that crown, I beat my body and bring it into subjection, lest at any means I should, or any way I become a castaway. And so Paul ran for it. You have the choice. You can do it or not do it. It's up to you. I, th- I think we would be foolish to not do it. I believe the moment we see Jesus Christ, we're going to wish we could have come back to earth to do it all over again. And it doesn't have to be that way. But there's that incorruptible crown. It's, the, it's given to the person who runs their race and finishes it. Then there is the crown of rejoicing. This is found in 1 Thessalonians and in Philippians. This is the crown that is given to those who win souls. Paul said that to those that were born again... As a result of his ministry, he said, you are our crown of rejoicing before God. And so there will be people there. I mean, I mean, it's a wonderful thought to be able to think that when you stand before Jesus Christ one day, there's going to be somebody there standing there that would have never been there had it not been for you preaching the gospel to him or somehow being a part of that. Because remember, some people sow the seed and other people water it. And so it's going to be an awesome time, isn't it, when when we stand before God and, and, and people are able to know because you gave, because you financially gave, because you prayed, because you supported. There were several people that were born again in Peru. I mean, when we went there a week ago, several people born again. When we go to Peru, those people are going to be before the throne of God and they're going to be our crown of rejoicing. They're going to be saying, God, we're here because of the blood of Jesus and they're the ones that told us about it. You know, and, and so it's going to be a time of rejoicing. How sad it's going to be for some people who go to heaven and there's not one soul in heaven there as a result of their life on earth. I mean, that's, that's got to be a horrible thing. Then there's the crown of life. This is spoken of in James and in Revelation. This is a crown that is given to those who suffer martyrdom. For Jesus Christ, their lives are taken as a result of them following him. There's the crown of glory. First Peter 5 talks about this. This is a crown that is given to pastors and elders. Those that have become very involved and, and effective and watching over and caring for the people of God. 
Any one of you can receive one of those crowns. There's the crown of righteousness. This is given to those who love his appearing. Those who love his appearing. Now everybody that would say, oh, I can't wait for Jesus to rapture the church, really doesn't know what they're saying and, and oftentimes really don't mean it. I mean, if we really believe Jesus was going to rapture the church at any moment, and that was something that I absolutely loved, then we probably wouldn't have a padded bank account. You know what I'm talking about? I'm not talking about being foolish, giving every bit of money that you have. We should plan and we should save, knowing that things are coming up. You have a, a daughter that's going to get married or you have a child that you're going to put through college. I mean, it's just wisdom to plan and prepare for those things. But it's understanding that Jesus is coming at any moment. Perhaps if I really believed Jesus were coming tonight, I'd be on the phone today with my aunt if I had an aunt that was lost. And I would be telling her about Jesus Christ because he, he could come at any moment. If I really loved his appearing, if I really loved his appearing, I would be diligent to bring those to Jesus. And so we think of these things. These are crowns that are there. In Second John... Notice what he also says, because in Corinthians we have Paul's letter, but in 2 John we also have his comment about this. And in 2 John, verse 8, John says, Look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. And so there is a full reward. And, and, and it, it's all going to rest upon whether you want it or not. Whether you desire that or not, when it is there and it can be there and it can be yours. Now, if I can, I want to use two people as an example of this when they meet Jesus. Now, the, both of these are, are good examples. I don't, I don't want to just bring some negative example in here of somebody that just wasted their life. But I believe when we understand these two lives and how they lived such a life that was pleasing to the Lord, then I pray it will motivate us. The first person that we have to look at I believe is the Apostle Paul. I mean, he is, he, is, he is the one guy in the New Testament under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit who says, I have run my race. I mean, he is, he is the one guy in the New Testament as the Holy Spirit is inspiring him to tell us, I did it. I went everywhere he wanted me to go. I did everything he wanted me to do. I preached everywhere he wanted me to preach and I preached what he wanted me to preach. By no means am I saying that Paul was perfect or he never messed anything up, but he ran his race. That's his testimony. That's the testimony of the Holy Ghost. So I think it would be worth looking into his life for just a moment to see what he did. He is a man without the care of making friends, without the hope or desire of worldly good, without the apprehension of worldly loss, without the care of life, without the fear of death. He is a man of no rank, country, or condition. A man of one thought, the gospel of Christ. A man of one purpose, the glory of God. He considered and even said of himself, a fool. And content to be reckoned a fool for Christ. Let him be called enthusiastic, fanatic, babbler, or any other outlandish, nondescript the world may choose to denominate him. But still, let him be nondescript. As soon as they call him traitor, as far as a business practice, householder, citizen, man of wealth, man of the world, man of learning, or even man of common sense, then it is all over with Paul's character. He must speak or he must die. And though he should die, he will speak. 
He has no rest, but hastens over land and sea, over rocks and trackless deserts. He cries aloud and spares not, and will not be hindered. In the prisons, he lifts up his voice, and in the tempest of the ocean, he is not silent. Before awful counsels and throne kings, he witnesses in behalf of the truth. Nothing can quench his voice but death, and even in the article of death, before the knife has severed his head from his body, he speaks, he prays, he testifies, he confesses, he beseeches, he wars, and at length he blesses the cruel people. This is the life of the Apostle Paul. This is the life that this atheist in his article wrote, saying, if I believed, as countless millions say that they do, that life on this earth affects the eternity of my life in the next, then every waking moment would possess me of this. Well, it possessed Paul. This fact of eternity possessed him. We understand from his own testimony that as a result of following Jesus, this is what he says. I was in prison often. I was beaten so many times I couldn't keep count. Five times whipped by the Jews, three times beaten with rods, once stoned, three times shipwrecked, a night and day in the ocean, frequent journeys, dangers from rivers, robbers, my own people, Gentiles, dangers in the city, and in the wilderness, and in the sea, and dangers among false brothers, and labor in hardship, and sleepless nights, hunger and thirsting, often without food, and in cold and exposure, was the way he lived his life for Jesus Christ. Why did he do that? Many people would have probably said, oh Paul, you need to lighten up. If Paul just would have been around today, where he could have had the modern conferences that we have today, where Paul could have learned a better way to preach the gospel, where he could have learned to not be so offensive, where he could have learned to accommodate all people, where Paul could have produced churches where anybody felt comfortable to go and nobody felt any convicting blade of the Holy Ghost coming against their heart, then possibly the Apostle Paul could have died at a ripe old age. And maybe he would have never been martyred. And maybe he could have gone down in the chronicles of history as a hero and a model citizen. Instead of his life being cut short because of his testimony of Jesus Christ. Make no mistake about it. The Apostle Paul would have never fit in to the seeker-friendly methods of today. He would have never been a part of a purpose-driven life. It was a spirit-led, spirit-controlled, spirit-driven life. And that was the only thing that Paul could embrace. But he was the one that said he finished his race. He was the one that said he was prepared to meet Jesus. So how did he do it? In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul tells us about it. He tells us what touched him. He tells us what was going on in his heart. I mean, think about it, guys. Think about it tonight. I mean, think about if you had an opportunity. If we could have said, you know what? God's going to do something really neat for us. Friday night, God's going to let the Apostle Paul come from heaven for just a few hours, and he's going to come sit here in the church, and you can ask him questions. Paul, how did you live? I mean, just what was it in your heart that made you live the way that you did to meet Jesus? Well, we have that, all right? He's not going to come here Friday night, but we have his testimony here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and he tells us in verse 17, or in verse 16, he says, for which cause we faint not... But though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. You, you just got to face it. 
Paul understood and was able to interpret things that were happening in his life as things that would transcend time into eternity. And if I'm suffering right now, it is working for me a reward that is infinitely heavier, more weighty, more valuable than any of the suffering I could possibly be going through in life. I mean, listen, that is his mentality. That is not the mentality of the average Christian today. That is not its mentality. The average Christian today finds a little bit of suffering, finds a little bit of hardship, finds a little bit of rebuke, finds that people have rejected him rather than loved him, and he goes and sinks in some type of depression and self-pity because somebody said they didn't like me because I'm a Christian. The Apostle Paul took that and said, that's one more ounce of weight on my reward. I mean, that's how he looked at it. I mean, this guy was possessed with a joy with a peace, with a readiness to meet Jesus Christ. If that is not in your sights, then the only way we can interpret problems and suffering in life is just another day of it. When will it ever end? Oh God, I don't want to deal with this again. Rather than looking to heaven. Paul did it and he saw, it. well I guess the thing is, it was just so real to him. I mean, he's the one that wrote most of this. We read what he wrote. It was real to him when he wrote it. The Holy Ghost wants to make it real to you like that. He doesn't want it to just be words on a page. I don't want it to be words on a page to me. I mean, when I read something like this, I pray, God, by the Holy Ghost, transform my life so that I can take suffering in life and look at the reward that's coming as a result of it and have exceeding joy. So he says in verse 17, he says, for our light affliction, and you read what he went through, it wasn't light, not in our standards, which is but for a moment, Worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Now listen, this is it. While we look, not at the things which are seen. Average Christian doesn't do that today. But at the things which are not seen. Average Christian doesn't do that today. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And boy, we may say amen to that, but the, the, the manner of our lifestyles would seem to say anything but that. We would seem to say that, you know, what's eternal? What's eternal is this temporal thing. What's eternal is our life on earth. What's eternal is our homes. What's eternal is our businesses. What's eternal is our stocks and our portfolios. This is eternal. And this, because, I mean, when, when we think about it, this is, this is the great, I mean, if you just looked at your life and, and took an evaluation of it, and you saw what the effort is put into for this world, as compared to eternity, I don't, I don't, I don't think we could, I, I don't know, maybe many of us in this room could really be where Paul is. But, you know, when I read it, I'm greatly convicted. How ready am I to meet Jesus Christ? I want to be an eternally minded person. I want to be so filled with the Holy Ghost that I can look on the things that are not seen. That, listen, how else can verse 17 be real if verse 18 is not your experience? I mean, just think about it, guys. Because I can't give you and you can't give me a formula. All right, this is what you do on Thursdays. This is what you do on Fridays. This is what you do on Saturdays. This is what you do on Sundays, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And if you do these things, when you meet Jesus, you'll be written. No, I can't give you that. You can't give me that. It's not a, it's not a set of things that we can just put down. It is seeing something that cannot be seen. And it's looking at it. It's fastening your eyes upon it. Randy led us in that prayer tonight about that. 
And so we have to be desperate for the Holy Ghost to do something in me. Listen, before I can ever begin to work for an eternal value, before I can ever have an eternal perspective, I must beseech God, the Holy Ghost, to give me the ability to see what I can't see. And if I can't see it, you know what's going to be so much more important to me? The things that I can see and the things that I can feel and the things that I can touch. And you can tell me all about that world that I'm going to and I can amen that. But I'm going to tell you, you know what's real to me? What's real to me is that altar. What's real to me is that pew. What's real to me is this watch. What is real is this plant because that's what I see. God, I want to be able to see what I cannot see. God, I want to be able to see that. Guys, this is the first thing. It is the work of the Holy Ghost to be able to allow us to do that. And so this was what Paul saw. He, could, he couldn't lighten up. He couldn't be easier on this. He was possessed with it. He saw something that people don't see. He fastened his eyes upon that. And he ran with all of his might towards that. The action of Paul's life was all produced based upon his fact of the future. He saw it. It was real to him. He forsook everything to be able to have that. I can't stress this enough, but I don't know that you're getting it. I really don't. But I can't stress it enough that we have to have God awaken our eyes to be able to see. Chapter 5, he tells us in verse 9, he says, Wherefore we labor, that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. That's why we labor. That's why we do what we do. That's why when I was stoned to death, God raised me from the dead. I got up and I went back and preached. That's why I did it. I labored that whether present or absent, I would be accepted of him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. This is what Paul was looking at. This is the unseen thing that he saw. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that every one may receive the things done in his body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. Paul was motivated by what he knew. He knew there was a judgment seat of Christ. He knew there was something far more valuable than this temporal world. He knew about eternity. He knew about rewards. He knew he would answer to Jesus Christ for his life in this earth. He knew he would do it. And so he labored out of a fear of God. And I think that's one of the great things that's absent today is a fear of God. A great fear of God. And, and, and whatever comes into your mind about fear, then great. Let it come into your mind. There ought to be a, a terrifying fear of God. There ought to be. We're going to meet him. We're going to stand before him. Not that we're going to be rejected and sent to hell. But I mean, when we face the judgment seat of Christ, it, it's going to be an awesome experience. It is, it is going to be quite an experience. And if you go there and you're not ready, if you're not going to receive a reward, if your works are burned up or my works are burned up, I can only, and, and I know that even my imagination doesn't do justice to it, what that is going to feel like as I'm face to face with Jesus Christ who died to redeem me. And so I want to be, I want to be ready for that moment. And so I try to learn from the Apostle Paul. So he, he had this reality of eternity, the judgment seat of Christ, and he feared God. So I have to pray, God, give me a fear of you. People don't have a fear of God today. It's rare. I can't say people don't. Some, a lot, some people do, but some people don't. 
And I'll tell you, even people in our churches don't have a fear of God today. If we had a fear of God, there'd be a lot less things that are watched today and movies that are attended today if we had a fear of God. If we had a fear of God, there'd be a lot less things that we do and other things that we would do if we had a healthy fear of God. And so he had this fear. Paul was moved by this. He tells him in chapter 6, verse 1, he says, We then as workers together with him beseech you also that you receive not the grace of God in vain. Apostle Paul would tell us, he said in 1 Corinthians 15, it's only by the grace of God I am what I am. That's why I'm telling you and prayerfully trying to tell me tonight, I've got to get before God and pray for my eyes to be open to see what can't be seen and to believe what I cannot see and touch is real. And to pray for God to give me a fear. It's a work of grace. And then when that work of grace comes, I can't let it be bestowed in my life in vain. It's probably come to people's lives and it was in vain. It, it, though it was there to produce in them everything that they needed, they never heeded it. It was just there and it fell aside. How often does this happen? Especially today, how often does this happen? How hard it is for the ears to hear today. How hard it is for the eyes to see today. How hard it is for the hearts to be touched today. I'm amazed by that. I mean, in all of these years of ministry, over 22 years of ministry and pastor, I don't know how many times I've sat in my office counseling people and we go through the situation and then we give the word of God and they even say, I know that's exactly what I need to do. And they never do it. And then their lives fall apart and they never do it. And, and it's just like, we don't have fear. Grace that has been given to us falls at our feet. And we trample it to get away from it. And then we go on a few more months or maybe another year and all of a sudden our lives are falling apart and we begin to say, oh God, is this what we get for serving you? No, we, we trashed his grace that he had given us before to get through these things. And we didn't heed it. He gives us warnings. God's not prepared. God's not just speaking to you for the moment. He's speaking to you in this moment for your future. And we have to apply it. We have to be ready for it. So what is his attitude? What, what would be the, the all-surpassing attitude of all these things? Eternal living. The being ready for the judgment seat of Christ. The fear of God because he knew it. Knew the terror of God. He lived to persuade men. What would be the basic motivation in it all? In chapter 5, 2 Corinthians he tells us in verse 13, For whether we be beside ourselves, it is to God. Or whether we be sober, it is for your cause. For the love of Christ constraineth us. Because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Think about it. If, if you will, if you're willing to, verse 15. Do you live for yourself? Do you live for yourself? Paul said, the love of Christ constrained me. I, I know people are talking about me. I know people are calling me a fool. But you know what? I love him so much. I'm so constrained by his love. It doesn't matter. I know I'm going to die for this, but I love him so much. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I don't live for myself anymore. Why, Paul, why don't you live for yourself? Because I love him. I love him. I know everywhere I go, imprisonment waits me. But why do you do it, Paul? Because I love him. I love him. And that was the motivation of Paul. 
I live this way because I love him. I want to stand before him and have a life that testified on earth that I loved him. That's what I want. I don't want to be the, 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 the flaky Christian that spent all of his life singing worship choruses and lifting his hands and talking about how much he loved God. And then when he stands before Jesus Christ, it's all burned up. I want to be a solid Christian. I want depth and, and maturity in my life. I want solid things that when I stand before Jesus Christ and he puts my life and works through the fire, that things come forth from that fire and every one of them will testify, I love you. I love you. I love you, Jesus. That's why. That's how. That's why your grace was not bestowed upon me in vain. Because I love you. It must be us. That's another work of grace. To pray for God to work that in our life and to do that in our life. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul wrote this. Another aspect. While you're turning there, I just want you to know the stark reality is every one of you born-again Christians will stand before Jesus Christ. You will not escape it. Nobody will be there holding your hand. There will be no pastor to stand beside you. There will be nobody that you can blame. When Jesus holds you accountable and he brings it out, and I don't know how he's going to do it, you will not have one. But, Lord, you will not have it. You will not. It's just there. And you're, you by yourself are going to face him. Oh, my I like to say, every time I think about that is, dear God, if you ever answered a prayer, don't let me go behind Paul. I mean, just don't let me go behind Paul. Or if I do go behind Paul, let him get all these, let all this praise offer up to you and then let's let me run through it real quick. Just burn it all up and just let me get through it quick. I mean, think about that. Think about it. First Corinthians 13. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, of course, which is love, I am become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, listen to these words, it profiteth me nothing. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up. I'm going to tell you something. There's no way around it. Paul lived his life for a profit. I mean, he knew there were rewards. He wanted them. He knew he could live in such a way that they'd be a prophet. He might have been the poorest man on earth, but he'll be one of the wealthiest men in heaven. And boy, when you look, okay, 80 years, you're a millionaire. And you get to heaven before Jesus. And you have gained the whole world, but nothing to show for the Lord. I I don't know. I do know. It'd be much better. To have nothing in this world and to have everything there. Where Jesus said, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. This is just sobering. He doesn't want to just feed the poor. He doesn't want to just bestow his goods. He doesn't want to just give his body to be burned. That's not his point. It's not finding some good little humanitarian thing we can do and let's go do it. And Boy, won't Jesus be impressed. 
I'm just so fed up with the seeker-friendly junk. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm fearful for that. I'm, I'm fearful for the people. I'm fearful for the pastors. Years ago at a conference in Beaumont, Pastor Clendenin was talking about this vision he had heard a pastor talk about. He said that the pastor, and he was the pastor of a church, and he was sleeping and, and in his sleep or vision or dream. He dreamed he was watching heaven, I mean hell. He was looking into hell. And he watched this man running through hell. He would reach down into the fire and he'd pick somebody up and look at him and drop him back. And he'd run, grab another and pick him up, look at him, drop him, run and pick up another and drop him. And he said, after I watched this man without ceasing run from one to the next to the next to the next, picking him up and dropping him back into hell, I just cried out. I said, what is he doing? And he said, the answer came to me. He is looking for the preacher that lied to him. A lot of preachers lying to a lot of people today. Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up. Y'all, when we read verse 4 through this, you know, all we can do is fall on our faces and say, God, give me that kind of love. Don't, don't say you'll go do it. You won't. We can't do this. This is God's love. It has to come to us. It does not behave itself unseemly. It seeks not her own. It's not easily provoked. Thinketh no evil. Rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. Beareth all things. Believeth all things. Hopeth all things. Endureth all things. Charity never fails. It never fails. So when I read this aspect of Paul's discourse on love, and I see what he said, boy, you speak with tongues, you can prophesy, you can have knowledge that astounds the whole entire world, and you can give your body to be burned, you can give all your goods away, you can go sell your money, you can, de- you can unload your bank account and give it to the poor. You've totally missed my point. That's not what God's after. God's not after you to become some poverty-stricken person. That's not what Jesus wants. Certainly not what I want. He wants us to love. This is what Paul said, constrain him. The love of God constraineth me. So I want to finish with this. I I don't intend to take much longer time. In Matthew 26. All right. We read about Paul. The example that I choose or have taken next is a very important example. And a very, very worthy example. And the reason I do this is because it's pitiful. But so many times when we talk about Paul, Christians immediately just give up. They just say, well, I could never do that. I could never be that. So forget it. So here's another example. In Matthew 26, verse 6. Now, when Jesus was in Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, there came unto him a woman having an alabaster box of very precious ointment and poured it on his head and as he sat at meat. But when his disciples saw it, they had indignation, saying, To what purpose is this waste? And John, in his account of this story, uh, Judas 
is the speaker, Judas Iscariot. He's the one doing the talking right here. Um, he wants to give it to the poor. And it's got to remind you of 1 Corinthians 13. No love in him, but what an act of charity. So they had indignation saying, to what purpose is this waste? <clears throat> for this ointment might have been sold for much and given to the poor. When Jesus understood it, he said to them, Why trouble ye the woman? For she hath wrought a good work upon me. For you have the poor always with you, but me you have not always. For in that she hath poured this ointment on my body, she did it for my burial. Verily I say unto you, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached in the whole world, there shall also this, that this woman hath done, be told for a memorial of her. Wow. I mean, you think about, I mean, you think about the kind of things people love to thrive on. I mean, you know the kind of stories we like. Oh, he was dead. I mean, he was just severed and body parts started coming back together and God raised him up, you know. That's kind of, oh, that's kind of, you know, that's what people want to hear. Jesus said, no, this story, what she has done will accompany the gospel all over the world forever. She must have done something pretty incredible. And she did. It's believed by overwhelming numbers of uh, commentaries and scholars that this woman is Mary, sister of Martha, the sister of Lazarus, and that Simon, this house, he must somehow be a member of this family. And it's Mary that is there breaking this vessel of ointment and pouring upon Jesus. There's another account of Jesus in the home of Simon. And this woman was an unclean woman who they made accusations to Jesus if he knew what kind of woman that was touching him. He must not be a prophet. And Jesus responded to them about that. But this is Mary. It's the one who sat at his feet, who loved him. As Jesus said, to Martha when Martha's busy in the kitchen doing all this work trying to get everything ready and Jesus didn't say you know she was in sin for doing it he just simply said to Martha Mary has chosen the better part and so this is Mary she just makes some good choices in life now I want you to think about this first of all I think about the people that are there and I'm not going to mention them all but I think about Judas and Judas represents the world. And he sees what this woman is doing. And he understands that this is extremely expensive perfume. And all he can think about is this is such waste. Incredible waste. And Judas represents the world. And it's the response of the world in regards to those young men, young women who want to give their lives to Jesus Christ and serve Him on a mission field. And the world looks at those young men and those young women and they think the talent, the wisdom, the intellect, the passion, the desire, what a waste to throw their lives away to serve Jesus. That's what the world thinks. Think of what they could do. Think of what we could do with that ointment. Think of the poor people that we could help. Think of your life. Come on, man. Get with it. Reason with yourself. Think of what you could really do for the cause of God. 
throw your life away on Jesus? What a waste. And that's Judas. He probably would have thought anything would have been wasteful on Jesus. I had that response in my life. My sister had that response on her life. Randy had that response on his life. Many have had that response on their life. When in that moment of life, when you're trying to choose a career and all the world is saying this, and you know you can do it, and you say, no, I will serve him. And my unsaved grandmother, who, thank God, was brought to Jesus before she died, but at that moment, unsaved, got up in my face and said, this is the stupidest decision you have ever made in your life. How can you throw your life away? And thank God she loved me more than as much as anybody could love me. And was speaking from a heart that didn't know Jesus. And I thank God that she was one to the Lord before she died. What waste. You could have thrown water on Jesus. And Judas probably said, what a waste of that water. Now here's another party that's involved in this. This is really interesting. The disciples. It wasn't just Judas. The Bible says the the whole band of disciples. They they weren't just, wow, what is she doing? This really doesn't make sense. I don't understand this. No, they were mad. The Bible says they had indignation. I mean, you could see it bawling up in their faces. They were mad. Think of this. Think of what could be done. There are people in the church world. I mean, they really do belong to Jesus. And, and your lavishness of giving your life to Jesus Christ is going to upset them. They're not going to understand it, but they're not going to like it. They're going to think, if, if you would have done what we wanted you to do, we could have done so much more, but this is what Jesus wanted me to do. And so you'll get that from the church world as well, or people in the church. Not everybody, but people in the church. And then there's Jesus and his response. And his response was gratitude. His response was acceptance. And he blessed her. And he held her up. And he kept the others away. And he defended her. And that's what he'll do to every one of us that wants to throw our lives away. On Jesus Christ. And when the world rises up to call you stupid. He'll say you leave him alone. He's doing this for me. And Jesus will watch over your life. And he will keep you. And he will protect you. And he will watch over you. If you're going to be a Christian. And this is what I learned from from Mary. I mean. all right, we're going to go out to the store and buy all this perfume. And come break it on the altar. That's not the point. All right. What is the point? Whatever you have. Whatever you decide to be. Then be it. If you're going to be a Christian, pour it out. If you're going to be a preacher, pour it out. If you're going to be a Sunday school teacher, pour it out. If you're going to make a commitment to the church, pour it out. Pour it out. Give it all. Isn't that what he said in Revelation This lukewarmness, I don't like it. Be hot or be cold, but not this stuff. 
So if you're going to be something, if you're going to say you're going to do something, then do it and pour it out. Go with it with all you've got. Give it everything. Pour it out. How many times do we understand that that is the message Jesus has been trying to get across to us forever? How many times do we know that? How many times do maybe even some of you still are here tonight personally understanding I am holding back? I know it. I know I'm holding back. And you know that. And, and, and look, there's fear. Jesus understands it. But he's going to give you grace. And when that grace comes, then don't let it be in vain. Take hold of that grace and go with him. And do what he wants you to do. And this is what happens. And this is what takes place. I want to ask you four questions. First one is this. Kind of answered it. But what did Mary do? She did all she could. What did Mary give? She gave what she had. She didn't sit around saying, oh, if I had somebody else's gift or somebody else's intelligence or somebody else's ability, what I could do for Jesus. She didn't waste her time with any of that garbage. This is what I've got. I'm giving it to you. How did she give it? How did she give this to Jesus? With love. She did it because she loved him. No regrets. Must have been an incredible amount of money. They, the commentaries suggest that this was such a valuable uh, ointment that it would have sustained her for the rest of her life until she died. And that's how she would have taken it. was her retirement. It was everything. How did she give it? How does somebody give that away if it's not love? She had to have seen something that you cannot see. She had to have seen it. She's the one sitting at his feet, soaking in these words that he's given. And all the other people are just, you know, the men in there, we're men. Yeah, we get to sit around the table with Jesus because we're men. Mary's in there in the kitchen. Martha's in there in the kitchen, slaving away. And there's Mary sitting right there at her feet, quiet, soaking it all in. He is the son of the living God. Oh, I wish that everyone could see what I'm seeing and feel what I'm feeling. She was getting it. And she took everything she had and in absolute love gave it to Jesus. And now listen, when did she do it? The scriptures say beforehand. Now this is important because the other three questions were no-brainers. But it's this question, this fourth question that we need to be prepared for. When did she do it? Beforehand. She did this for my burial. She did it before it all happened. She did it. Not long after this, Jesus was killed. He was in the grave for three days. Early in the morning, on the third day, a group of women went early to the tomb to do what? To anoint his body. Did they get to do it? No. All their good intentions, all what they were going to do, what I was going to give, meant nothing now. But there's Mary. She did it. She did it. And the Bible says that the fragrance of her sacrifice, John said it filled the whole room. Everywhere Jesus went, that bloody night and that bloody next day, 
there was the aroma and the fragrance of Mary's worship all over Jesus. He was anointed for burial because she did it. She did it beforehand. Time's running out. Time is running out. You're going to stand face to face to Jesus Christ. You've got something to give. Will you give it? How do you give it? With love for Jesus. And when should you give it? Before you meet Him. Because when you meet Him, it's too late. Do it now. Do it now.